I'll go ahead and open us up in prayer for the evening, and we'll get on to tonight's session. Tonight being sort of our beefiest, let's actually deal with Bible passages and what is going on around here type of situations. I picked a couple of, we'll call them doozies. So it's okay if we don't come to the hard and fast conclusions. I'm trying to introduce you, put your toe in the water to discussions of what happens with biblical interpretation. What are the things that people, scholars debate about and why do they get in there? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're good and we can rely on that. There's no question that you're good. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word, through the Spirit's ministry of the word to each one of us. Grow us in that for your name's sake. Help us to strengthen one another by pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ on the throne where he is now, pointing to Christ in the word, seeing him throughout the pages of scripture, pointing to Christ as he works in us and among us and through us to serve his own body. So, Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you're good and that you're at work. We pray that you'll be at work in our midst tonight, guiding our discussion, making alive what's happening as we look into your word together. Help us to see the way that you see. We ask all these things through our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Review. Week one, we talked about you, me, all of us as readers. As readers, we all understand that sometimes communication works well, sometimes it doesn't work so well. And we looked at some examples of that. And we identified that there are lots of reasons for that, but especially because of our biases our own experiences, our own perceptions, our own amount of investment, all of those sorts of attributes of being human that are part of God's planned experience for us, that we develop biases, that we developed preconceived notions. We just need to develop the good ones and toss out the bad ones. He wants us to have those so that our, our reaction is something positive. Because we are, we are created things. We are creatures. And so we have reactions. And he wants those to be good. And I wanted all of us to experience together and see together that we have prior allegiances. And get some of those out on the table. We have prior allegiances that when we come to any text, in the Bible in particular, we come with certain sets of lines that cannot be crossed. Or lines that must be crossed. As we enter, we treat it in a certain way, especially as a religious text, as a faith text. We have certain expectations of it when we come to it. And some of those assumptions help and are good, and some of them hinder. And it's important as we develop as readers to get as many of those assumptions, prior allegiances, up to the conscious level. So that we, when we say, oh, I'm reading it this way say, well, that's probably because of I have this other prior assumption. I have this allegiance that, I'm, that, that I see forcing me into a position that it may be one you then need to get rid of if it doesn't lead you to a good conclusion. 
And this explains, the main point of that, was to explain why it is possible and even why we should expect that when different people read the text of the Bible, read biblical text, they come up with entirely different conclusions. We should actually expect that to some degree. Once we understand that people have their own assumptions and own allegiances and their own experiences that put a lens on the way they read and that that's natural, that we all do that to one extent or another, then we should expect to have different interpretations come out of that wash. So it's not a strange thing. It's not a problem that that happens. The problem is getting to what are the specific assumptions that people are making that lead to those. So it drives us back, not to the conclusion reached, but to the reason why the conclusion is reached. And that's a more fruitful experience for everyone involved. Let's talk about why we reach these different conclusions, not just the conclusions themselves. Last week, in our second session, we turned our attention to the other, partic uh, other participants in the interpretive act. We talked about that there's not only a reader involved, but there's a text, and in particular, a Bible, and it has features and attributes that have to be considered as we look at it. Also, that the author of the text plays a role in communicating meaning. You don't have a text without an author. It's just a fact. It's not words. Human communication doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It takes people. So there's an author. We discussed what the, uh, that the Bible, or what is the Bible as a human text, as a compilation of human texts that held importance for the communities in which they were written, and that the biblical texts are certainly more than literature, but they're not less than literature, which is to say they are thoroughly human texts. And the moment we, div we divest them of that or act like that's untrue, we will walk into misunderstanding. These were humans who wrote these things. But it's more than that. There's certainly more than that. I ended the session by arguing for the importance of attempting to reconstruct the author's intended meaning of a text as foundational to the way that people make meaning from a text. If I have, if I open up the box of my wife got a brand new vacuum cleaner, a Hoover or something like that. She got this new vacuum cleaner. We open it up. She looks at me and says, basically, put it together for me. And I say, how about we follow the instructions? I'm sort of the atypical male in that respect. I'm a reader. I want to read. And when the, the makers of that vacuum wrote that, they intended something. If I treated it like it was poetry, the vacuum cleaner might not run. If I thought the whole thing was figurative, then vacuum might still be in pieces on the floor. But the authors intended something. And so I'm trying to reconstruct their intention, as well as a vacuum, when I look at those instructions. This stands in opposition to postmodernism. Jerry's mentioned it a couple of times from the pulpit. I'm, I try to do these lessons so that we don't get bogged down too much in academic terminology. But postmodernism is a term you should at least have a surface familiarity with. It's the view that people make the meaning. It doesn't matter so much what the author intended. That's not useful to us. Because we can't know that we've reconstructed that author's intended meaning. In fact, the author, 
writes something one day, the next day, in one sense, he's not the same human being he was. His experience have changed. And so he might look back on his own writing slightly differently, has the same problem as a reader then. So even though it's the same person who wrote something, this is the postmodernism view, even though it's the same human being, the next day he has different experiences. He's not the same person he was when he wrote that. So in their view, that's not where we go to find meaning. Not important, not really relevant. Because you can't know that you've reconstructed the intention anyway. So I was arguing against that. That there's a fallacy there in thinking that, one, there's no value in the attempt. There's no value in the attempt. Or two, it's logically inconsistent to say that just because I can't know that I've done it, that I haven't actually done it. So I gave you the analogy of a blind person putting together a jigsaw puzzle. That person will never know without some sort of outside confirmation that he or she has properly put together a jigsaw puzzle. He or she won't be able to see the picture, the picture on the box, picture on the puzzle, to know for sure. But everything seems to fit right. And if everything seems to fit right, that person can have a high degree of confidence that he's done it. So it's logically fallacious to say that just because I can't know for certain that I can't actually do it to a high degree of certainty. So I was arguing against that. And that leads us to this week where I wanted us to dive more into the Bible is more than human literature. The Bible is certainly more than human literature. And that's because of the overarching super author who stands above and behind all of the human authors, God. And I want us to take a look at a couple of New Testament passages, Paul in particular, I believe both of them are Paul. I had, I had a list and I said, if we do this, if we do everything, we'd be here all night long. So for everyone's sake, I cut it down to two. I'll be surprised if we even get through those two. But just a couple of examples of Paul taking Old Testament passages and then interpreting them for his audience in his context. Just like what Jerry does on a Sunday morning, just like what, and to some extent, I'm doing right now, just like what you do when you're reading the Bible, you're trying to make meaning for yourself within your context, you being the audience, that same idea. So what are the things he's doing? All right. So to get into tonight, recap over, let's all take a look at the first question there on the worksheet. Taking a look at the passage, all scripture is breathed out by God. I imagine most of us are very familiar with this passage. Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. I want you to take a few seconds. Look at that. I know it's one of those well-worn, sort of trite passages. You heard it a, a thousand times for the argument for inspiration that God inspired the words of the Bible. But now I want you to think about it in terms of interpretive method. What does that passage imply about interpretive method, about finding an interpretive method? Just take a minute, think about that jot an answer down. All right, go ahead and chat with each other. And if you look at each other and you're like, I have no idea what he's getting at. 
I don't, I don't have a clue what he's asking me to. I, first of all, I admit, just like with my students at the school I teach, I say to them sometimes, I know what answer I'm looking at or looking for. Sometimes I'm not good at asking the question that gets you there. I accept a level of responsibility in this if my questions aren't good. It's not you. We'll just say it's not you, it's me. I'll do the it's not you, it's me thing. It's probably not you, it's probably me. But go ahead and talk to each other for another minute and a half. Just get some ideas. What is it you, what is it you think that this passage might have to say about finding an interpretive method? All right, let's start over on this side of the room. I want to hear what, what sort of sense did you make out of my mess? Um, well, if the Bible is directed by God and so forth and it has everything that we need in it, the Bible itself then should give us the answers. Equip yeah. us with the answers. Answers for? for? For life, for everyday living, for everything. Okay. Including interpretation. Okay, good. Middle, what'd you guys come up with? Um, I, I wrote that, there, that it, it tells you, even though, let us know that even though these books are written by different individuals over a long period of time for different purposes and different parts of the world, that there is an overriding author, there is God, who really is the author, and so you can trust on cohesion okay. throughout all the books um, as having a central intent. Okay, good. Awesome. Eastern table? Well, it does have four prophets, four different things, teaching, reproach, correction, training, and righteousness. You can be trusted. Right. Okay. Good. All scripture trusted because breathed by God. Right. Yes. However, it can only be trusted by the man of God. Okay. It says that that the man of God may be complete. So you have to be a person of God before you can comprehend any. Okay, good. I like that last part. Yeah, June. What was your question? But where did where did he get it from? Where did the scripture come from? Where did who? I'm sorry. What do you mean by that? Where did Paul get this idea from? Oh, where did Paul get this idea from? That's a great, that's a great question. I think some of that will get unpacked as we go through this. As we go through this. Is he referencing his letter he's writing, or is he referencing what he, what Timothy would have called scripture? That's a great question, and I think my knee-jerk, although I'm moving my hand, my knee-jerk reaction, because that's the phrase we use, my knee-jerk reaction is to say that scripture, graphe in the Greek, scripture in his world would have been the Old Testament. Now, we know that by the time uh, Peter is penning his epistles, as we saw, he's referring to Paul's letters, and he says, Paul's writings and the other Graphos, the other scriptures, so he puts them in the same category. So we know that at some point, 
early on in the first century that the apostles began to look at each other's writings on the same level as the traditional canon that they had together. And that that was their view, that God had breathed it out. So we'll unpack some of that. Where does this view come from? Or I'm not so sure we'll be unpacking where it comes from as much as we will see it repeatedly being used as the assumption that they have. So this is, a pri- this is an assumption that they bring into the New Testament that the apostles, that Jesus even has, that the scripture is divinely inspired. Does that almost answer your question, June? Or did I leave you hanging? We'll get to it. Good. Yes, I believe he's talking about the writings of what we call the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. In specific. Good. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we got out of that passage, and this is sort of the implication, is that if we're going to find an appropriate methodology of interpreting the Bible, if the Bible is profitable for, if the whole thing is profitable for teaching and correction and training, then somewhere in its pages we have to find examples of people doing this. We have to find examples that we can follow. We have to see people doing interpretation in a way that somehow would teach us, would train us, would train the man of God to be able to do it rightly. Person of God. Would train the follower of Christ to be able to properly do this regularly. So if it's not there, then the Bible itself would have a real problem. Many of you have probably heard over and over again, that the Bible is its best interpreter, that in order to understand the Bible, you use the Bible to explain the Bible, that sort of thing. So it falls into that category. And the second question, I didn't finish it because I didn't want you to have the answer to the first question. And the second one is, what might be some theological problems with, and the the last half of that is, if, what would be the problem with using methods not found in the Bible? So if I have an interpreted methodology that isn't to be found in the Bible, what would be wrong with me as a Christian doing that? Go ahead and take a few seconds and write out what you think. I'll be interested to hear. Go ahead and take a couple minutes and talk to each other at your table. What, what are some ideas here? What, would, what might be a theological problem with using methods not found in the Bible? All right, June, you had an answer for me. You were ready at the beginning. That was at the beginning. Now you've changed your mind, you're not so ready anymore? What's the problem with that methodology? Well, we decided it's not the whole truth. 
Okay, it, it consciously excludes contrary claims or, or other relevant material. So if someone is consciously excluding other relevant material, then, yeah, that... Oh, well, I'm sorry, I overstated the point. If they're consciously doing it, it's bad on two levels. If they're doing it unwittingly, unknowingly, it's still wrong. It may not be as, shall we say, deceptive, intentionally deceptive, but it's still incorrect. It would still be incorrect in that manner. Okay, good. I think they get that way by listening to the teacher rather than getting into the word themselves and asking the Holy Spirit. Oh, sure. There have been plenty of... I've made that mistake over my walk on particular viewpoints where I just... That was what I was taught. You remember, the, uh, for those of you who were here the first week, I brought up the point, your denominational affiliation, where you grew up as a Christian will largely impact that first, those formative years, that initial teaching. Man, it's tough to get around that framework once it's built in. It is, it is hard to break out of that. Um, so our early on Christian experience and the teaching and the assumptions that come with what especially that influential person brings to you, it's hard to get around that. And, and so very similar. What do we come up with, Middle Teagle? Benefited from not listening to church when I was a kid. <laughs> that was not the point I was trying to make. Once again, we have a communication failure here. <laughs> yes, uh, good, though, good. Middle Table, what did you guys come up with? What are, what are theological problems with using a non-biblical methodology? You said, um, you know, outside influences. Okay, negative biases, just incorrect assumptions that can affect proper interpretation. Okay, what else? I kind of kept thinking if you're bringing in interpretations that aren't covered, then you're not going to understand the ultimate author's intent, you know, because God is the ultimate author. And then it kind of goes back to the uh, scripture that we stated the first week, where it's found in 2 Peter, it says, uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So if you're not using the right methods to interpret it, then you can, like there's a, you're not getting the whole truth, so you can actually twist it to your own destruction. Okay, good. Yeah, there are lots of practical, I'm hearing lots of practical answers. What, what happens when we do it wrong sort of thing? And those are good. Yeah, Mark? Um, I, I wrote that, um, that um, I'm limited and finite in my perspective and my knowledge. And... Um, so if I, if I accept anything other than what I see here, um, it, it, it's a, it's a, it has a great possibility of being tainted because of my limitations. Sure, certainly. Yeah, that's good. You don't know if you're getting the right thing if you take it from somewhere else. These are all, like I said, these are all good practical explanations. Um, so we'll chalk this one up to, I asked the question poorly. Here's what I was going for. So maybe you can help me rewrite this question for the future. Um, theoretically, 
I guess, is a way to state it. Theoretically, theologically, the problem that I see with bringing an external methodology, one you can't see a hint of in the Bible, one you can't find there, is that you have now made something else outside of the Bible the judge of the Bible. God's Word is now subject to some man-made external methodology. And the problem is, I now get to dispose of whatever I think doesn't work. So if the Bible's stated methodology is worse than my... If an apostle does something that I think is crazy, I say that apostle was just off his rocker. And he doesn't know what he's doing. Because I've got a methodology that works. And his is crazy talk. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happens quite often, especially in academic realms. How many, and I've thought this before, so put myself out there. There are times when I've thought I've read an apostolic interpretation, a New Testament author's interpretation of a passage, and went, how in the world? That makes no sense out of, that has nothing to do with the context. And I have just assumed a lot about myself, first of all, that I really get, that I get it, and that guy was an idiot or something, which clearly is wrong. Not only that, that he didn't know what he's doing, and I've made myself the judge of biblical authors. That's a bad position to be in. For Christians, that's a bad position for anyone. But especially for someone who wants to get it right, that's a bad position to be in. There are lots of them. Just even conversations in academia, and unfortunately, even in what we would consider evangelical, conservative, God-fearing, Bible-believing circles, there are people who will say, "Well." The apostles could do that just because we can't do that. And the veiled claim is, I don't get what they were doing. It makes no sense to me. That's what that's hiding. That claim to some sort of, these guys, the Holy Spirit just gave them some mojo that the rest of us can't plug into for some reason when it comes to understanding the text of the Old Testament is a claim to, I think he was off his rocker when he wrote this. Because it makes no sense. It's a, it's a nicer way. It's a religious way to say that. The Holy Spirit did it. And so he just, like he was doing something different. And I once held that view. I'd read portions. And because I couldn't make heads or tails of how an apostle could arrive or a New Testament author could arrive at that conclusion, I would look, he must have had some special juice. You know, that's, that's, all, I, that's all I can say. Yeah, that's right. He, he got the Holy Spirit Kool-Aid and I don't or something. But it's a veiled way to say I don't get it and so it doesn't make sense. Um, but there are problems with that as we'll see. We'll see. We'll get to it. What I wanted us to get is methodologies that we can at least find in, in the Bible, biblical authors talking about the Bible um, or other passages. If we can't find what we're doing there, we should second-guess ourselves, not the biblical authors. Right. We should be trying to figure out what it is that they were doing, not just not in, inject some, well, they must have had some special hotline that no one else can ever perceive. Why would that be useful to us then? And think about their original audience. 
Would they have felt that way? Like, oh, okay, well, he just said it. I have no clue what he's talking about, but all right. So there are a lot of problems with that, that way of, of perceiving the biblical authors. So my bias, and I think it's a good one, is that using interpretive methods not attested in the Scripture places an external judge onto Scripture. No longer is God's Word sufficient to train Christians for instruction and correction. Something outside must sit in place of teacher for the Christian then. This seems completely contrary to Paul's point in this passage. We should attempt to use, to find, to construct, and use the same methods of understanding the Bible that the biblical authors did. If it's inspired, if it contains all we need for instruction and correction to be able to do the work of the ministry, to rightly divide the word, all those things that we hear about, then it's got to be in there somewhere. We've got to see it in there. Here's what I wanted us to look at. That next section, these are longer, so you're going to have to take a couple minutes. Most of us know these passages, generally. Probably split it up, open up a Bible. I didn't want to print off four sheets of paper per person for this thing. Look at the Emmaus passage again. Luke writing there, Jesus on the day of his resurrection, coming to some disciples, opening up the Bible, showing them the Scriptures, and talking to them about it. And then in Acts 17, you have the famous Bereans passage, the difference between Thessalonians and Bereans, and Paul's interaction with them. Take a few minutes, look at those passages. What are some of the elements that we find here about how apostles understood biblical interpretation? What is it that they're doing, Jesus and the early believers, what are they doing with the Bible? What are the things they're seeing? How are they treating it? And what expectations do they have of biblical interpretation? So take a few minutes. I'll give you, you know, four or five, and then we'll sort of chart out some of the elements that we find. You might even jot down some key words as you're going through the, the passages. What are some key words that kind of jump out at you? Go ahead and take two or three minutes and discuss with the members at your table the main, main, pick one, of your, if you found several things, pick one, and each person, take, take a few seconds, what's the main thing you saw? Share that with the members at your table. Pick one and share it. All right, just a little bit longer than... Interested to hear. I heard lots of good stuff in your conversations. Lots of good stuff. All right. Let's hear from the middle group first this time. Who, uh, who would like to share a key idea, something that came out, or maybe even something that surprised you that someone else said? Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the two common things are that you have to view Scripture in the light of a suffering Christ. That it makes no sense. Unless you see the suffering side, the suffering state. Okay. Because that's said in both of them. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Other thoughts? So the apostles, when they read the scriptures and they looked at it, they see a suffering Messiah. They see a suffering Christ. Good. So that's part of their assumptions. And it comes to the key parts in the Old Testament. You know, they're constantly in both, well, all three pieces of scripture. They're, they're referencing the old scripture. And, 
that's right. They're taking all of it in total. Good, good. We'll get that. And I heard, I heard some of that over here. So we'll probably let's hear from this group. Anyone from this group like to share? What what sort of things did you see the apostolic understanding of Scripture that early church Jesus and the apostles doing with the Bible? Well, uh, Jesus told them to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Good. And I, something I thought is that they, they didn't have the Holy Spirit when they were on the road to Emmaus. But they did have in Acts. Okay. So when they were on the road to Emmaus, they could look at Scripture, but it wasn't necessarily being interpreted with them through the Holy Spirit, but once the Holy Spirit came on them in Acts, then they had the Holy Spirit to help them interpret that. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> I mean, that really could be. There is dispute about our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. What I'm going to say about that, lest we be derailed in a different conversation, is that the Holy Spirit does the absolute confirmation. You're absolutely right that... Now, the problem with these two narratives is in both cases, you have people, groups of people who have not yet believed on the resurrected Christ. So to talk about the Holy Spirit work gets tricky in one sense because we tend not to believe that he indwells people prior to Pentecost in the way that we think of consistent with the rest of the New Testament. But we also believe that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, woos, draws people, that sort of thing. So to say that he's not at work in these different periods would be untrue. But to say that he works the same way at all times would also be a, a little bit inaccurate. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, or did I just because, muddy the waters? No, no, I think that's good because he, he, he's the one that interprets, even, even if he wasn't on them the way he was on David or Moses or whatever. He was still interpreting scripture. Right. And so they still could have gotten it and that's why Jesus was able to say to them, well, read it. <laughs> you had a person of the Godhead standing there explaining it to them. So it's not like you needed two or three. You had enough already telling them what's up. That's good. <laughs> okay, this table. Western table, what you got? Uh, just that um, it's it's a whole the scripture. It's it's always backing itself up all the way through, and like when he talked about uh, when he told you were such fools, people you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures, and it was clearly predicted by the prophets. And then it, I thought it was kind of cool how he said there, uh, he explained what all the scripture said about himself. So it's kind of like what Mark was saying, like it, it's, it is the common theme throughout the whole thing, like even back through the Old Testament, like it was about him. So he was like, so I think that kind of, you have to read it at everything. You have to take everything literally throughout the whole thing. I so look forward to that day. Jesus, just just show me all of you in the in this old part. Uh, we see you so clearly up here. Show me in the in the in the first half of the story. Show me all the parts because I see you here and I see you here, but I want to see you in all the parts. That, yeah, that's good. Here are a few ideas. Uh, all of those are good. I think all of those are accurate. 
um, good stuff. Here are some of the ideas I had when I looked at these. First, and I, and I heard this, I think, from Josh, that it's historical. Both Paul and Jesus treat the Old Testament like it's historically accurate, like these things really happened, that, these, that there were real people who said real things that have real import. The scriptures are meaningful historically. That they're predictive. This came out in your... That they're predictive. That because God is the super author, that people are able to say things that they could not have known on their own. And that multiple people say the same things that they could not have known on their own about what was going to take place. That Christ... Third thing, Christ is all over the Old Testament. That he is the central character of the Bible. From the beginning all the way through to the end, Christ is the central character, the key theme, the big point, the superhero of the Bible is Jesus, is Christ, is the Messiah. Throughout it. And they both treat it that way. Both Paul and Jesus treat it that way in these two passages. And then last, and this one, sometimes it really challenges me. Both Jesus and Paul expected people to be able to see detailed features about who Jesus is and how redemption would be accomplished through the Old Testament. Both times they said that in both passages, that the Christ must die and must rise again on the third day. When I think about the detail, I'm challenged by that because I struggle to find that level of detail in the Old Testament. Now, I can point to things that I think give me that detail. I can certainly find a suffering servant. I can certainly find an anointed king who dies. I can certainly find resurrection. But to find them all in the same person and after three days is difficult for me. Now, it's there. And both Paul and Jesus expected, expected people to see that on their own. Paul could show up for a few weeks, leave, let the people figure it out on their own from the Bible, what he had said, that what he had said was, was true. Jesus turns to these guys, how do you not know this? If you were reading it right, you'd get this already. That's a challenge. That's a, and I'm not saying that's easy. It's not easy for me. It's, but it's a challenge that these are the assumptions that Jesus and even Paul is bringing forward when he looks at the Old Testament. And we've talked about some of the reasons why we find it challenging. We've talked about some of the reasons, about assumptions, about the fact that it takes work, it takes buy-in, it takes investment, it takes perspective, which is only time, that sort of thing. And one of the last things, and I think Jesus brings this out very clearly, you know, one of the hardest things for us to do is to just believe what it says. Like, when it says something, like, we... we are so radically fallen. And by radically, I mean at the root. Fallen in a way that one of the biggest jobs the Holy Spirit does 
is to cause us to believe what it says when it says something, when the Bible says something, to actually believe it in deep. I think being close uh, to Jesus, because if you read, just think about 20 years before Jesus was born, and read Psalm 22, what the world. <laughs> right, right, yeah, sure. Yep. Yes, there is a clarity, and we'll bring this up, but Jesus is coming and his life and his teaching bring a focusing lens in to clarify a lot of these things. So we'll, we'll get there very quickly. Uh, not this next question, but the one after. Man, time gets away so fast. Let's take a look real quick together at, let's see here. Number four, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Peter's talking, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. My question there, and we can just sort of uh, bandy this one about, this quick banter about it. My question is, what is it we can infer? What can we see Peter's, some of Peter's assumptions about the Old Testament authors, prophetic authors, prophetic writers, even prophets in general, about their level of conscious awareness of everything that God is talking about, even when he's speaking through them. To simplify that, when an Old Testament author was writing, even some New Testament, I think the pattern holds, does that author, even though he is inspired by God, does he understand everything that God is communicating through him? What does Peter assume? Go ahead. What do we think? Does Peter assume that he knows everything that God is communicating through him? Clearly not. These men would, they would get perceptions from the Lord that the anointed one, the Messiah who was coming, they would even see some of the sufferings. And they wanted to know who, when, how does this happen? Remember the assumption again that if you read the Old Testament carefully, you would see the Messiah was supposed to suffer and die. But they didn't consciously understand all the who's and when's of it. They weren't given everything that is implied by God's message on a conscious level. Is there anybody in the New Testament that declare that anyone understood that? Because it appears across the <coughs> Fully? Um, well, I think, I think what the point I, I think one of the points I've been trying to make, in some degree, is that um, we all should have, yeah, but whether or not we did. There's not an example in the New Testament of anyone that said, "Oh yeah, we know you're going to die and be raised." Right, right. I think you're right. I don't think we have evidence of someone actually articulating that. Right. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. What kind of message is that that Jesus is, says we all should have got it, and that nobody we have no we have no witness that anyone got it? Uh, yeah. 
Peter does not expect authors to know the full meaning nor all of the implications of what they wrote. And for the sake of time, I'll give you the example, Daniel 12, and Daniel 12, verses 5 through 13. You might want to jot that down. Daniel 12, verses 5 through 13. Daniel is seeing this vision of the men standing on the other side of the river, and they're talking, and they're talking back and forth to each other. And he says, one swears by heaven, it'll be a time, time, and half a time's when all this happens, and Daniel says, what are you talking about? He can hear the message, he's even writing it down, and he does not know what they're talking about. He does not understand. And even says, I heard it, but I didn't understand it. And then when the angel says, don't worry about it. It's all sealed up. Basically makes the point, down the road, they'll understand. The same thing Peter is communicating. It was revealed to them that they were not that they were serving not themselves but you. So there are parts of the Old Testament that clearly even the prophets, Old Testament authors, biblical authors understand that I'm writing some things I do not understand the full meaning of for generations to come on whom the end of the age will come, these people. That's an assumption that our apostles had. And I say that to clarify it for you because there are members of conservative, Bible-believing who will teach that unless an Old Testament or biblical author fully consciously understood the implications, that is not an appropriate meaning of the, of the passage. And I go, whoa. Or, uh, most of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Wow, how do we get there? I, I, I struggle to know how that's possible. And they will say things like, well, God revealed the full meaning to them in that moment. And I, uh, we got a Daniel who says no. We got a Peter who says no, that wasn't the case. So I struggle to understand that, that theory. I struggle to understand that. So it is okay, it is right and proper to say that this biblical author did not understand the full import of what God was communicating through him. That's part of inspiration. So is that what I could say? About yourself? Well, yeah. I didn't say that. There are some elements of that that's correct. Here's, here's why people who will teach contrary, what I'm talking about will teach is because they're afraid of the very move you're asking about. They, I'm opening up the door to everything is right, is, is what they fear. And so they're pushing back against the, if I open up that interpretive door, then I can never say that that interpretation is wrong. That's not true, because in the same Jesus says, why didn't you get this? Some things are clearly wrong. You should have known this is the right way to read these things. So it's untrue that there isn't a right way. Uh, we're human. And so, once again, we have to talk about certainty. How certain do I hold my position? How certain do I hold this passage? How certain can I feel about it? I'm not an apostle. I didn't walk with Jesus. I didn't hear him teach directly. They heard things that they don't share. So, for instance, in Acts... Luke even records, with many other words, Peter appealed to the people on the day of Pentecost. I wouldn't mind knowing what some of those other words were. 
But I don't have that. They did. John tells us at the end of the gospel that if, all the, if we were to record all the things that Jesus did and said, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. So they had access to stuff I don't and that you don't. So we're not standing on the same ground. Is that helpful? Okay. Do you see any intent in the Lord communicating that way? Even though he says, oh, you foolish men, how come you don't see this? You know, he taught in parables. He said the reason he taught in parables is so they couldn't hear it, but not understand it. That's the same with the Old Testament to the people living there. That's like a character of God's communicating method. He hides things, and he reveals them to whom he wills. So at the same time Jesus says, hiding it from the people he's, he's citing from Isaiah there, uh, that that was Isaiah's purpose. If you go back and read the opening chapters of Isaiah, when he sends them out, he doesn't send them out to preach good news. And that it's so that you'll preach exactly what's going to happen, and they won't listen, and judgment will be worse. It's, it's I, I'm kind of making fun of these. So... People will do the, go into the missions field, let's read Isaiah 6 and his commission. And it's like, no, that is not what that is, not what that is about. That, that God chooses him to go out and bring judgment down on people because they won't listen to his message. That is not a good missionary passage. But okay, I get why they use it. I get why they use it. All right. Yes, there absolutely is something to that. Um, but... Paul makes it clear that if, it's interesting, it's hard for, sometimes it's hard for me to understand when he says this, if the rulers of this age had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And I think to myself, what does all of that mean? Um, and I think his point is just that no one with, with anything more than rocks in his head would have done this if, they re, if Jesus had really shown them who he was, if they really understood who he was. There's no way anyone with any sense would have done this. I think that rulers in that scripture is more than just the physical rulers. I think it's the spiritual rulers that um, had, the, had, had Satan himself known this was God's plan to be he would have backed off. That's an interesting sort of back, back-ended exegesis. I think... Right, right, I see what you're saying. It's the spirit behind I'll have to look at that. Right, I see what you're saying. Interesting. I just think God didn't didn't send him out because he had to understand because he knew he had to go across the stage. Right, yeah, yeah, and I think that's sort of what Mark is backing into there, is saying that there had to be, and there are several times we have in the Gospels where Jesus says, hey, don't tell anyone who I am, my time's not come, or don't say anything, and of course no one listens to him, and they go off and tell everybody who he is and what he did. Right. <laughs> um, let's move on it, before we wrap up the whole series I could do this forever you guys are awesome but I know you want to do something else this evening other than hear my voice that's right there's got to be something else um, so all of these examples work together to make the point that biblical authors look to the intention of the human authors and prioritize the meaning of the divine super author God that his meaning gets prioritized, but it's not to the neglect of what the human authors were writing. 
Because God is the author of the Bible, we begin interpreting with a reasonable reconstruction of the human author's intended meaning, but we cannot stop there. That's not what the apostles did. That's not what we should do. In fact, we know that God is the inspiring super author intended to communicate more meaning than even the human authors were aware of sometimes. So we'll just take a look at this one, the Genesis 12 and Galatians 3.15. I've put two passages there. Genesis 12.7 is what Paul is quoting from in Galatians 3.15 through 17. Take a look at that. And first question I have for you, what do you think the original author, Moses, what sense of the word seed, just read that first passage, what sense of the word seed would have been, would the original audience of Genesis have understood there? What do you think? Children? Any other thoughts? What reasonable reconstruction of meaning would you come up with when God says, I will give this land to your seed? What, what's normal language say? Future generations. Future generations? Good. Most translations r- r- render this Hebrew word, Sarah, they render it as offspring, children. It's a word for seed. It's a singular word, seed. Now look at what Paul does with that in Galatians 3. And I've excerpted it, you know, I've done the first few verses and then dot, 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 ellipsis on down to the last part of his little statement there. Look at what Paul has done with the word seed in Greek sperma. What can we say about Paul's view of the language of the Bible? What can we say about his view of the language, the apostolic view of language of the Bible? Yes, absolutely true. But when we come to the language itself, as a reader of the Old Testament text, what is he doing? How is he using the language, the features of the language itself. A specific word, not only a specific word, but whether it's singular or plural. I mean, right down to, this is in, in theological terms, uh, the concept of verbal plenary inspiration, that every word, verbal plenary inspiration, that every word of the Bible as it was originally written was inspired by God to be the word that it is. So here's Paul, bam, right down to one word in the Old Testament, whether or not it's singular or plural, he's making a theological argument about That's a very high view of Scripture. <laughs> That's a very high view of the Bible. That's, yes, 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 that's right. Here's a question, though. Does he negate, with his understanding and use, does he negate what we first thought that the, intended, that the readers would have understood as the reasonable intention of the use of the word? Does he negate that? No, he doesn't. What does he do with it? Okay, how? What do you mean unites them? Um, that, um, 
Good. Right. So there's a, a head seed who's singular. And you'll notice in verse 29, that last verse, and you, plural, who are in him, are also Abraham's seed. Plural. So singular seed, one singular, we all know that's Christ. He's the seed. Imagine, you know, like someone, how someone says, man, he is the man. Something like that. The seed of Abraham is Christ. And all of you who are in him are the seed of Abraham, plural. So he hasn't... He hasn't done violence to the original intention of you will have plural offspring who inhabit this. You will be blessed with plural offspring. He says, yes, and there's a fuller sense. Looking back through Christ, knowing historically what has happened over what is referred to as the redemptive history, the way God has worked in history through mankind to bring about redemption. He can look back and see the seed. Uh, he's talking about Christ there. He didn't even realize it, but he's talking about Christ there. God had a fuller meaning, and that includes all of us who are in him, plural. Paul sees God's promise through a Christ-centered, Christ-fulfilled lens. You, plural, are Abraham's seed, shows that he has not negated the plural sense of offspring, but has focused in on the historical and grammatical aspect of the Old Testament and then hit a plus sign on it. Plus, oh, by the way, God had a bigger meaning, too. And we see that unfolded as we take the whole of the Bible together and the whole of our experience with Christ together. We see, we find what the, the author meant, exegete it right down to whether or not something is singular or plural, and then add the divine author on top, seeing the way he works, all of those connections, all of those assumptions, all of those things that they brought, and is able to make a theological point about the first covenant can't be annulled by a later covenant, and you're all part of that first covenant. You're in that seed. So this is one of those passages that people look at and go, what in the world is he doing here? There's no way Abraham thought, oh yeah, Messiah, when God said this to him. Or even Moses. Oh yeah, he's talking about the Messiah. As I'm penning this story about Abraham, this word seed I'm using right here, this is about Messiah come centuries. No, but they don't have to be. They don't have to be. The biblical authors don't view it that way. They don't assume that. All right. Now, I've opened up a whole can of worms, and I probably answered very few of the burning questions you have. But I hope, pray, that at least this helps you to think about as... As Jerry stands up to preach, uh, I remember a couple weeks back he said before I started this, he said, Todd's not going to tell you that you can't do with the apostles or that we shouldn't try to do with them. He was right. He was right. I, I will tell you, we need to understand better what the biblical authors were doing with different parts of the Bible. And the better we understand what they're doing, the better our interpretive methods will become. The more we understand our assumptions and align them with theirs, the better, you know, 
It's not that it's a mechanism where you just crank it out, but for purpose of analogy, once you get the right gears in the place, you start cranking out better answers. So we want to adopt and look at more of these texts. I've given you another one there. That one, I'll tell you what, that's a good one. Paul and the, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Think about that one for a while. Let it, let it uh, mess with your brain. I'll just point out one thing. Notice there's no context to understand. Just before it is about beating someone with 40 lashes. Just after it is about leave a right marriage, a man sleeping with his brother's wife when he dies. There's no context about oxes or getting paid. Okay? <laughs> and Paul, when he talks about getting paid, he says, doesn't the law say that we should get paid? And then talks about an ox. So there are some other assumptions there. So I'll leave you with that quandary, some, some teaser for you to go deal with. How are the apostles treating the Bible? Uh, I, I appreciate all of you who came out and your participation. It's been a pleasure for me. It, feel free Hit me up on email if you have any questions, anything you'd like to talk. I usually attend first service on Sundays, so if you want to catch me, love to chat. And if you hit me up with an email first about a question, you're more likely to get an answer that makes sense. So, <laughs> so I appreciate it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word that when we really do the work and start to look in, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to guide us and to energize that work and to make it possible to make right meaning, your intended meaning as the divine author. Lord, help us to do that work, to cherish your word, to be mastered by it, so that we might be more effective servants in your kingdom, doing your good pleasure and delighting in who you are. Help us to see you, Lord. See you more in the Old Testament. See you more clearly in, in the New Testament. Jesus, be big in our sight. We bless your name and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.